1: wherever you are, doing whatever it is you do, masked, unmasked, distance, close, whatever it is, hey, it seems like this is the land of opportunity, so uh, just live your life the way you want to live it and let things fall where they may. That seems to be where we're at here with the pandemic in the United States at the beginning of August. Uh, lots of numbers of cases, lots of deaths, lots of people ignoring guidelines, some people adhering to th- to them, Uh, some people not being affected, some people being uh, crushed by this pandemic. I just hope you're comfortable where you're at and you're in a good headspace. Hey, I've got a great guest on the show today. It's Dave Bricker, who is an expert at storytelling. Dave, I met online. He lives down in Miami, Florida. Uh, When he's in college, he bought a boat, lived on it. After college, went on a big sailing trip to find stories and to meet characters, and he did all that. And he's written over 10 books since then. He's a great storyteller. He's a member of the National Speakers Association. And I'm excited to share him with you here in just a second. You're going to get a lot out of this episode. I do want to mention a couple things up close and up front in case uh, you don't go much further than this. I'm going to do an online live Zoom writing class. So sounds confusing. It's not. What I'm going to do is take the class that I usually teach here in Nashville live to students and do it live online for students anywhere who want to take the class. And because I don't have to rent space and uh, travel down and back and forth and that kind of thing. And we're going to do it virtually and digitally. It's a one-time, first-time, super-duper half-off special, $99. Gets you the three two-hour sessions. The sessions will be recorded in case you can't make all three sessions live and in person. So there's really no excuse not to learn all the great steps in writing great jokes. We're going to do this in August, Tuesdays. Three Tuesdays. Okay. So get this down. Tuesday, the 11th, 18th, which is my birthday. I'm going to do this on my birthday and the 25th. So August 11, 18, 25th. We're going to do this Central Time, 8 till 9 10 o'clock each night. All right. I don't know if that's too late for you guys wherever you live, but I want to do this when people are done with work, got the kids in bed, and uh, you can have your full day and then focus on you before you go to bed. Again, this is going to be August 11, 18, and 25 from eight till close to 10 o'clock each night. And it's going to be a lot of fun recorded for your benefit, $99 flat, and uh, it's going to happen. So the class size is limited. I don't want to get to where it's top heavy. I want to be able to get focused to each student as we go through it. It's going to be a great class. You're going to learn all about the the keys to writing good jokes, where you get inspiration, where you don't get inspiration, how you craft a joke, the uh, four key ingredients to a joke, things that make jokes more interesting, more funny, and we're going to learn techniques to apply to what we write so we punch them up and give a specific reason for an audience to laugh. If you've been on the sidelines wondering when to jump in, now's a great time. If you've been doing comedy for a while but not had the success you needed, and think you deserve. It could just be your writing. You could have great ideas. But not know how to articulate them best in material. So I'm going to help you with that. And if you're a brand new out-of-the-box, never-done-comedy-before person, you're going to benefit from this class especially. So join me August 11, 18, 25, 8-10 p.m. Central Standard Time for this one-time, first-time, $99 class special. All right, we're going to get into the episode right now. Thanks to Ray Price for sponsoring us through Patreon. I'll tell you more about that at the end, but here is Storytelling Tips with Dave Ricker. Well, I'm on the call this morning with Dave Bricker of Story Sailing. Dave's down in the Miami, Florida area. How's it going this morning, sir? Fantastic, uh, given the circumstances we're all dealing with. I found out about you through a mutual friend, and then uh, I started looking at your website, and I'm like, I think I may have passed this guy in the hallway at an NSA meeting or something sometime down the, in the past, but uh, your whole thing is story sailing. You You sailed earlier in your life. You still do a little bit. But uh, you went searching for stories, and I, I want you to get into that a little bit. What what drove you to go look for stories, and, and to do it on a boat, nonetheless?
0: Uh, well, I was, you know, I, w- I was uh, a private prep school kid, and I uh, kind of doing the straight and narrow path thing. And I guess guess I always had certain, uh, you know, creative tendencies, and. Uh, but, but I thought adventures happened in books and movies. That wasn't something you did in real life. And what happened is I got a summer job after my first year of college. I was working on an art project. And on that project, I met some people who lived on sailboats. And they told me about all of these faraway places they'd been and, and, and the great adventures they'd had. And I wanted stories of my own. And that's pretty much what inspired me.
1: That's cool. I remember in high school and again in college reading *Old Man in the Sea*, and I just thought, man, that that's beautiful but horrifying at the same time. When you were out on the boat, I mean, how many times did you come up against a storm or some rough waters where you thought this could be it?
0: That happens, but uh, you know, how many times does it happen on the expressway? (laughs) <laughs> you know, people, people. oh, you you sailed across the Atlantic. You're so brave. And I think uh, I sometimes, well, how many hours do you spend every week on the expressway? How many hours do you spend every year on the expressway? You know, hundreds of people sail across the Atlantic Ocean every year, and their odds of survival are probably much better than <laughs> the average commuters.
1: Yeah, I don't that at all, especially know uh, where I live now, we're getting pretty bad. So yeah, it might be safer. There's less people to bump into. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, that's cool. So so you said you went to prep school and, and you started searching for these stories and stuff. What what kind of, you know, what kind of were your first stories that you found when you're out there? Were, did you put too much of a demand on finding the stories at first or did you, did you learn to let them happen and come to you?
0: Well, I didn't, you know, I guess what happened is once I got hooked on the sailing thing and ended up living out uh, in the sailboat anchorage, The story started to happen naturally. I think the first thing that happened was the characters happened. And when, you know, people who live like that off the grid tend to become caricatures of themselves. There's no particular social archetype. Everybody's just different. And I got to know the people and I got to know their boats and I got to know their stories. And that stuff just kind of came to me. And then when I was 23 and I, I was still in college, I was finishing up, I bought my first sailboat for $3,000 and began to fix that boat up and get it ready for my journey. And same thing, I ran into setbacks and uh, sailing the boat. I had the usual mishaps. I ran aground and and uh, hit weather that I wasn't quite ready to deal with, but learned real fast. And I think, I think stories are, are everywhere. And uh, as soon as I opened myself up and began to look for them, I didn't have to look too hard. They came
1: to me. That's interesting. And I, before I start getting into the more of the storytelling stuff, I'm, one more curious question about braving the seas. I don't think I'd be able to fall asleep. I'm sure I would get exhausted at some point and have to fall asleep. But when you, when you put yourself down for the night and you're still in the water, how do you know you're going to be heading the right direction when you wake up in the morning?
0: Well, there are times if you 're near land or shipping where you do stay up all night, sometimes for a couple of nights and you sort of catnap and doze off in the cockpit. But you stay on watch. Um, when I did my Atlantic crossing, it was a friend and I and his daughter, his young daughter and you know at night when we were out in the middle of the ocean away from the shipping lanes, we, we kept uh, we 'd shorten sail and let the autopilot steer. But I think I woke up every 20 minutes, half an hour, poked my head out the hatch, and if I saw lights on the horizon or, or weather on the horizon or sensed any change in the way the boat was moving or the sound of the waves, I'd be up and in the cockpit. So it yeah. is possible to stand, watch, and sleep at the same
1: time. I guess you have an extra sensory thing that heightens when you're out on the water and you're hyper aware.
0: Yeah, it's like rowing. You know, when you row, you row backwards. You're, you're you're facing away from where you're going. But after a while, you develop the sense you don't hit anything. You don't crash into boats and things. Yeah, you look over your shoulder some, but you, you just
1: know. That's interesting. And so when it comes to storytelling, you know, speakers and comedians listen to this podcast and you're out there collecting those stories, noticing different characters. What were some of the ways that you, I'm sure, you know, some of these are indelible images that are in your mind forever, but the ones that may have been periphery characters or, or smaller stories, how did you collect those and catalog those or keep them so that you could access them later? Well,
0: some, some of them I actually wrote down and I had a film camera. If anyone remembers those, I had a 35 millimeter camera and, you know, I still, still have pictures of those times and those people and a picture will really jog, jog your memory. But I, after I'd been gone for a little while, sailing a little while, I got I got access to um, a computer, and my background's graphic design. My MFA is in graphic design, so oh, I didn't have an MFA at that time, but I had design background. So I put together a little tongue in cheek Captain Dave's Nautical News and sent it out to friends and family. And years later, when I was putting the memoir together, I had all of those articles and things I'd written and jogged a lot of memory. It all came back.
1: Yeah, you know, just collecting those things on the day to day kind of keeps it keeps it current. And then you just build up that huge catalog of full things to go back to. So that's that's great. Some people don't like to journal, but I find just a few things each day in a, a notepad helps me remember that day and some of the bigger events and like you say, just as a picture triggers a memory, just a couple of notes will trigger the memory of the bigger story, huh? Absolutely. When I tell stories in my show, so I'm a comedian and I, and I have stories that I think I kind of wrote backwards. So I have a, something funny happens and then I try to figure out how to make that funny thing happen to me if it wasn't me. And then I try to figure out how can I make that relevant to my audience so I can get into it. So, and then I end up building a series of jokes around the, that incident and then if I have a second angle on in the incident, it grows a little bigger, and I usually try to have three different angles to where it grows to be a four- to five-minute piece. But I feel like I've written the story backwards, and there's probably some things that are crucial to stories that I might be leaving out or not being not having tapped into Explore yet. So just for the basic layperson, the story has to have a few crucial elements. What would those be?
0: Well, I'll tell you. A, a story represents a journey from conflict to transformation. And there's more to it than that. But think of a story as a sailboat containing, it could be a group of people but or community, but it's usually a main character. And that character is lost on the rocky, stormy seas of conflict. And what they want to do is get to the safe port of transformation. Now, if you are telling, for for example, let's, let's take something like a, an insurance company ad or an anti-smoking ad. Very often they'll show, the insurance company will show wrecked cars and burned houses, or the anti-tobacco campaign will show yellowed teeth and fingers and wrinkled skin or an x-ray of lungs. And it doesn't work because it's the conflict. Whereas if you sell... Um, elderly people uh, enjoying time with their grandchildren, or you show somebody finishing a marathon, that's actually much more engaging. So I think one of the mistakes people make when storytelling is they focus on the conflict and not so much on the transformation. And the conflict turns people off and scares people away. The story is driven by conflict but it's got to be going, you know, what, what is it that – where do they have to go? What do they have to fix? Uh, how are they going to save the universe? Whatever it is, uh, uh, the story moves from conflict to transformation. Another way you, you hear this in marketing is they say sell the
1: benefits, not the features. Got it. And, and we talked on the phone last week, and you had a phrase that I really like called the unfinished symphony. And we were talking about when somebody creates tension in a story or in a room and never relieves that tension. So is that kind of what you're talking about, where the transformation didn't happen maybe in some of those stories?
0: Well, that's one thing. If, if, if I were to tell you, you know, uh, a, a, friend, a friend called me up last night and said some very threatening things to me, <laughs> that's it. That's the story. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a second, what happened? I mean, nobody called me. I just made it up as an example. That's the unfinished symphony where you've actually deprived somebody of an ending and that that's why we'll watch really bad movies and television just to find out how the story ends and at the end we kick ourselves for doing it but, oh why did i watch that i knew it was going to be lame from the first 10 minutes but i had to find out how it ends so that's that's what i call the the unfinished symphony story gotcha. but the 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 conflict and transformation Thing, more. I think people, it manifests itself where somebody will say, let me, let, me tell you, let, let me tell you about my speaking program. And I talk about this and I talk about that. And I've spoken here and I've spoken there and I've worked for these clients and I've worked for those clients. That's great. But why are they going to hire you to speak? What problem do you solve for the audience? So, for example, if you speak about employee uh, uh, engagement and you want to teach companies how to attract and retain talent, now think about a tech company every time they hire a new employee, it's about fifteen grand in onboarding costs between their computer and software licensing and their training and their equipment. Now, if one of those employees leaves, that means they lost that fifteen grand and they have to hire somebody else at a cost of 15 grand. So it's a big deal. Now, if you can treat, teach them to do that, whatever you're charging to speak is inconsequential. They're not charge. They're not paying you to run your pie hole for 45 minutes. It's not, it's not about speaking. It's about solving problems. And I see in the speaking industry, for example, a lot of people talk about themselves, they talk about what they do, but they don't talk about the outcomes that they produce for people. And the golden rule of storytelling is that stories are always about people, even if they're about talking animals or aliens, at least metaphorically, they're always about people.
1: Got it. Are there things that people do in creating a story that makes it hard or confusing for the audience? I hear sometimes speakers introduce two or three characters in a story, but really... There was only one that was relevant. And you're like, they probably just introduced those other two people because they were there in real life, but they, they didn't contribute to the story. So you really could get rid of those, couldn't you? Which,
0: which really, I think, speaks to the idea that storytelling is not journalism. And your goal is to transform the listener or transform the audience. Your goal is not to lay out every painful detail of the truth just because it happened to happen that way. And I like that. ultimately, if you're trying to produce an outcome for an audience, if you need to make up a character or omit a character, I'll give you an example. In my sailing memoir, it's called The Blue Monk, which was the name of my sailboat when I was young. It was named after Thelonious Monk, the jazz pianist, had a tune called Blue Monk. And there's a place in the book where I kind of island hop through the Abacos, the northern Bahamas. And we start here, we go to this island, and we sail for a couple of hours and go to this island and sail all day and go to that island. And that's great. Now, in reality, I visited those different islands on five or six or eight different trips. But why would I make my reader do all of that anchoring and all of that sailing? What I really want to do is, is talk to them about the islands and the different characters of the individual islands. So I eliminated a lot of navigating from the story, and if somebody wants to call me a liar, that's fine. But I think it's a better book and a better story because I I trimmed it down to serve the reader.
1: And I think that's something we forget often. We, you know, I think speakers evolve in different ways, but most of us try to accumulate enough material to speak for an hour, and so there's a lot of filler in there. And then once we start getting good at telling stories, we might get uh, attempt, you know, a few better gigs, but we don't move beyond that because we haven't increased the vi- the value that we give our audiences and we haven't cut the filler out. So there's there's constantly that cycle of building stuff up, then trimming it down to what's necessary, then adding more to it, right?
0: And it's it's even more important when you're speaking because there have been times where I've been reading a book and I think, wait a second, there's a character here. I don't remember the introduction. Maybe I was just tired or not paying attention. And I can go back and thumb through the pages and find where their name gets referenced and reread. When you're speaking, people, anything extraneous, any extraneous characters, any extraneous events, if it doesn't have to be in the story, get it out because nobody has that written reference. And they want to follow that simple story track and really understand the journey from conflict to transformation.
1: And that was kind of another question I had, too. Are there certain differences in the storytelling from the point of view if you're writing it out in a book and then you've got that story, but you're also giving a speech and you want to include that story? Are there some things that you do more as a presenter and less of a storyteller in that situation?
0: You know, I'm, as as a writer, and I I probably write 1,500 words a day. I love writing. But when you're writing, you can get into these nuances and details and, and you can go all Herman Melville and use your big words and, right. and long descriptions. And it's great because it's, it's a, the art form lends itself to maximizing, you know, flexing your English muscles, flexing your language muscles. When you're on a stage, <clears throat> people don't want to wade through all of that stuff. If you really want to bore yourself to death, go go to an author's open mic and listen to everybody read the first chapter of their book. It's like being bitten to death by ducks. <laughs> what why is it so boring? Some of these are good books and it's because this stuff was never written to be read out loud. It's got all of the filler and stuff that you might luxuriate in while you're reading in it, while you're reading it, but while you're listening to it, and you're sitting on an uncomfortable metal chair and you're waiting to get through 10
1: authors. It's like, oh, please, please don't don't do this to me. Cut it down. But there's crucial elements you have to keep in there, I'm sure. You know, we talk about the, the arc of a story. And so in a very basic sense, we've got the conflict of the transformation. But what are some points along that arc that change our characters?
0: Well, let let me give you the other two elements, and, and, and story arc is important. That's the journey from conflict to transformation. Now, if you've got, say, a novel or something like that, what you might have is a point where the character you know, fights the first battle and wins, and then they realize that they've got to cross the mountain, and then they start hiking up the mountain, and then they meet uh, the the guide along the way. And then they get to the top of the mountain and they realize it's a sheer cliff and they've got to go back. And that's another chapter. So setting up these sub conflicts that carry the main character toward the ultimate goal that their, their ultimate transformation can be part of the story arc, but there, there are two more elements of this story sailing model. So we talked about the voyage from conflict to transformation in order for a sailboat to make that journey, the water's got to be deep enough. And uh, if you run aground on a sailboat, especially at high tide, the tide goes out, the boat slowly falls over, you end up sleeping on the wall and waiting for the tide to come up in the morning, and then you know using anchors and sails and engines and tow boats and things to get you off. It's, it's not fun. And it's interesting that we use this word deep to describe stories, to describe people. If the water's not deep enough, if the conflict is not authentic, that's also going to keep people from being interested in the story. So I'll give you an example of a story that's not very deep. If, uh, if Dudley's father decides to buy him a brand new Porsche 911 for his 16th birthday, and he sends the butler to take him to the Porsche dealership, and he says, you can't have yellow, you can only have red. And Dudley really wants yellow we just don't care because he's an entitled little snot who's getting a Porsche on his 16th birthday. And, you know, boo hoo, take, take the red one and go home, you know, stop, stop whining. We just don't, we don't care. We care if he has a situation where his value system changes and he becomes a bigger, better person. So is, is the story authentic? And I don't know, uh, if you have kids, I know a lot of our, our listeners do. And at some point you ask your kid to do something and they say, why? You say, well, I just think it's a good idea to, to get this needs to get done. And they say, why? Think, well, because I really just think it would be a good idea. Why? And you finally say, because I said so. And you okay. become that parent you swore you would never become. If we ask why, if we keep asking why, why, why of ourselves, we get to the authentic conflict. And in business stories, for example, yeah, everybody wants to make money, but that's not the authentic conflict. The authentic conflict has to do with really survival-level things, uh, amygdala-level, fight-or-flight-level things. It has to do with food, love, shelter, status, safety things, things of that nature that, that are, are deeply ingrained and money might be a means to obtain those things, but it is not the authentic conflict. And when you find that authentic conflict, it drives the story. And the last, and I'll just finish because there's one more element. The, The sailboat needs wind and wind is magic. It's invisible, but it's powerful. And this is where every individual, every person has their own own particular unique magic. There's no competition. It can be talent, insight, experience. It can be equipment. Uh, it can be education. It could be a team. Whatever it is that they bring is their unique magic. And that's what makes their boat move. And it's what makes the listener and reader's boat move.
1: I'm glad you got to wind because that to me sounds like the most fascinating part. And that's as the speaker, maybe the thing that we have different from the next speaker. We have a different wind. We've, you know, some of us, <laughs> I could get into really funny, you know, some of us are very windy <laughs> and never get anywhere. But yeah, we, we, that's the thing that we harness maybe slightly differently than the other story sailors as our own personal wind. But in the, in the stories we tell that, that we tell, the audience should be a character, if not the main character. Almost ninety-nine percent of the time, right? If
0: if you're speaking and you're talking about yourself, what what is it my my, my father said? Narcissism is the only disease where the sicker you are, the better you feel. <laughs> Nobody wants to watch a speaker get up on the stage and talk about himself for 45 minutes or an hour, even if their story's interesting. So for example, when I when I talk about if I tell a story about crossing an ocean, or running aground, or getting lost, I very quickly dial that into the oceans that uh, my clients need to cross, that my, cross, that my listeners need to cross. Um, themes like trusting your compass—we all need to learn to, to trust our compass and battle those voices of self-doubt. A great nautical lesson is, uh, you know, being a captain when. When you're in charge, when you're the captain, no, whatever happens on your boat is your fault, no matter who screwed it up. How many people can stand to learn that lesson? So even if you're telling your own stories, you've got to tell them about the audience, or people are going to pick up their phones.
1: I do think in our our marketing, everything is a story. And if we if we just look today, the people that are listening to this podcast, if you just look at your website and ask yourself, is there a story here? And there's not. There's a huge opportunity to talk about the the conflict and the transformation for your audiences that you should address pretty quickly and update. Right.
0: And it's about the outcome who, you know, what outcomes do you produce? What problems do you solve? What do you do for people? Because everybody's got their oceans to cross their mountains to climb their, their woods to find their way out of whatever it may be, whatever metaphor you use and speakers use a lot of these different metaphors. And, and, it's part of what makes us all different based on our, our equipment, our, our experience, our equipment, our knowledge, whatever it is. But this idea of uh, take that metaphor, make that story about uh, make your story a metaphor for the listener's story, for the audience's story.
1: Yeah. A lot of times we, we might have a great story and not use it because we don't know where it fits, but there's that higher universal theme that is behind every story and if you're not sure what that is, typically it's, if you ask yourself the question, what made me write this down or tell this story, that will give you an, an indication to what that universal theme is. And as humans, we all share those. And those are the little clues and cues of where to put those into your presentations.
0: Right. And, you know, I have stories that are in the sailing memoir that are in the Blue Monk. And there's some of my favorite stories I've never told on stage because they're they're more like literature than business fables. And I've never been able to find a way to plug those particular stories into uh, the lessons that I want to teach. My reason for for being on the stage—if someone's paying me to be on a stage—or—or. Or I don't care if I'm on the stage for free, but I've been asked to be there. My job is to serve that audience, not get my stories out of my system. And too many speakers are up there, you know, doing their therapy on the stage.
1: Right, right. And I don't get paid enough to do that, to be the therapist for a speaker. That's crazy. Well, you know, we are in interesting times now where we're presenting more from home, from our computer, through Zoom sessions and all these webinars and things. I'm curious to If there's differences or things we should be extra aware of when we present virtually that can help us serve our customers and our clients better through this computer screen, as opposed to being there in the room where you have the energy and everybody's physically in the same space. Well, funny you should ask, because I just published a book on this called Speak Inside the
0: Box. And as the lockdown hit us and we all went home, I thought, okay, we're home and I might be home for a while I don't know how long, but it's going to be longer than they like to say it is given the the graph of the infection and, and how quickly it's setting in and how slowly we're getting past the, the cusp of the curve. And I started doing a lot of research on this because in the speaking business, all of us, our calendars just got wiped out. It's the meeting industry apocalypse. And so, I thought, what's different? And the first time I sat down and did a virtual presentation, I was amazed at how lame I was. I used a lot of filler words, and er's, and ums, and ah's, and I didn't really use my, my vocal range. And I did an online meeting, I did a conversation. So, when we sit in front of a screen, especially if we're used to using Zoom or Skype or video conferencing software, we tend not to use our speaker range. We tend to just stay monodynamic and be in conversation mode. Well, we're having a conversation right now and it works fine. But if I was presenting, I want to back away from the screen. Actually, I've now got a green screen and a camera mounted on the wall on the far side of my small office. And I give my presentations on my feet with a, with a stage in the background, because it's, it's just, I want to try to deliver that big stage experience. What happens when you're in an online meeting is, hang on, I've got a visitor coming in. Come on, baby. (laughs) What happens when you're trying to do a presentation at home, the dog knocks on the door. Was that perfect timing or what? I didn't stage that. That's That's great. great. Uh, But you've got somebody's face a foot and a half, two feet in front of your face. And if you get loud, if you use your big speaker voice, you would never do that when you were two feet away from somebody. It would be considered confrontational. So there's an instinct to kind of shrink to fit when you're speaking inside the box. And another thing that happens is think about the average person using their laptop a laptop is marvelous. It's got a keyboard, a microphone, and a webcam, and a mouse all within a foot of each other. Well, perfect for casual conversation. But if you put that camera where it's looking you right in the face, now the keyboard's up here where you can't use it. If you back away far enough so that you've got room to use your hands on the screen and and really uh, use your big gestures and things. Now the mic, automatic mic sensitivity goes up and you're hearing the sirens in the neighborhood and things like that. So another thing I think people can do is uncouple all of that stuff. The laptop is a marvelous marriage of convenience, but get a better webcam than the one that comes with your laptop get a bluetooth keyboard so you can raise that laptop up to eye level so that you're looking right into the camera and get a lavalier mic so that you can back away and the mic will follow you and filter out ambient noise and then we can get into lights and green screens and all sorts of stuff that that uh, i'll probably skip the techno babylon unless you want me to go there it's all in the book
1: that's great and the book's on
0: your website right The book is on the website and it's on Amazon. It's called Speak Inside the Box. And it's a a guide to virtual speaking. And whether you're speaking at meetings or you're trying to retool your, uh, your speaking and presentation business, it takes you through the gear you need, mastering the online meetings, and then building a virtual stage with a green screen and lights and things like that. And it doesn't go into massive detail because it would make the book thick and techy, but it gives you the basics that you need as far as understanding what the ingredients are. And then you can go to YouTube University and look up all the details about how to light your green screen and, and, and all of that stuff. So it's, it's a basics book. It's a primer.
1: It's a concept kind of book. It gets you thinking and you, we, when we talked on the phone last week, you told me something interesting you did so you could visualize the audience as far as seeing faces when you're speaking to kind of keep yourself engaged. Can you tell us about that real quick?
0: Well, uh, something I'm actually in the middle of doing this because I find that if I'm speaking and I'm standing on the stage and my monitor's off to the side, I tend to look over at the monitor to see how people are reacting. I've got Zoom and gallery view. So I'm actually putting a second monitor up directly underneath my camera, so that I can look right into the faces of my audience. But if that's not an option, to put put a, a monitor or an iPad or something up there where you can where you can see uh, feed off the audience reaction, which is so important for speakers, then at least. Clip some photos out of magazines and put them on a board and glue that board up on the wall, pin that board on the wall in front of your camera. If nothing else, get a cut out a pair of eyes and put them next to your webcam. Get yourself in a position where you're speaking to people. Stories are always about people. And you've got to get past the technology and engage with uh, humanity on some level, even if you're tricking yourself on some level.
1: You know that's that's great for presenting to groups, but also just making videos from your desk that people consume. The more it looks like you're speaking on a stage, now they're not going to think that you are if you've got a backdrop. But but the more you put them in that mental space of this guy's professional, he's delivering it to me, he's keeping eye contact. The more you keep it realistic, the more it it, it tells that story. It helps deliver that story.
0: Right and it's it's just it's like business fashion i mean if you were going to go give a a speech at a at a convention you wouldn't wear scruffy jeans and a t-shirt it would be disrespectful to the audience and i think that on-screen appearance is the new business fashion that expensive pair of heels or that designer sport jacket they're all hanging in the closet now right and especially the heels will never be seen on the screen but invest a little bit in lights and and, and a background and, some, and a green screen. Even if you're presenting in your chair, you have this much better appearance. You look bright and clear and people can see you and jump on your average Zoom meeting. And of course, this is new to a lot of people. They're just trying to figure out what to do to, to make the technology work. But more and more, you're going to see people learning not to present in front of a bright window, people lighting themselves properly, people adjusting their cameras, there's there's software where you can adjust the zoom and the lighting on your webcam, plenty of ways to improve your appearance on screen. And God forbid it costs you a couple or $300 to get some lights and things. I know it's tough times for everybody, for me too. But uh, if you want to be a professional, this is uh, what it takes. You don't have to buy high-end cameras and things, but something to to look clear and colorful and sharp and make yeah, a good this, impression.
1: This definitely isn't a time to cut back and, and scale down. Uh, it's a time to adjust and pivot and learn how to adapt. And if it costs a few bucks, uh, think how, think what it won't – What it will really cost you if you don't make some changes right now, right? The losing business down the road.
0: And I'm all for improvising. I mean, if if all you have is a desk light, that bright bulb is going to cast, you know, hot spots on your face, but cover it, cover it with a white towel or uh, I have, I have a little LED light on my desk right now and it's really bright. It doesn't have a diffusion screen. It's, I can't even look into it. It'll, it'll blind me. And I folded a paper towel over about four times and rubber banded it over the lens because it's LEDs. It makes no heat. And that's illuminating this side of my face right now. It's just perfect. A little light on my desk. So improvise Uh, lights and LEDs. And if you you can't buy the studio gear, just find ways to to light up your face.
1: That's great. And then as we get ready to leave here i'm going to send everybody to your website storysailing.com and they can look up dave bricker your you've got plenty of of written books out there people like to read is it 15 20 books how many have you written at this point uh,
0: i've i've done a dozen books okay <laughs> from novels the sailing memoirs the blue monk i've got a book for uh, a little book for speakers storytelling for speakers which is called story T- story sailing And I've got some speaking exercises, which are excerpts from famous speeches like the Gettysburg Address, and the book teaches you how to break them down and find the emphasis words. I've got all sorts of geeky books available about speaking and and writing, and you can find them on the website. And there is also, I send out a blog post every two weeks, I don't want to inundate people. And it's usually a storytelling topic, though lately I've been focusing more on virtual speaking, speaking being an important element of storytelling, but writing, speaking, it's all there. And I'll be doing blog post number 50. So this will be two two weeks coming up on Tuesday. That's great. Two years, rather, coming up on Tuesday.
1: That's great. Well, there's tons of stuff on your website for people to dig into. I think they'll know just from listening to this interview that you've got great – observational skills on on how to convey storytelling to speakers. I've learned a few things. You know, A, a couple of quotes today really stand out. I mean, one is basically taking people from the conflict to the transformation is, is super important in all stories. Putting your audience in the story is super important. And then also that uh, storytelling isn't journalism. I really like that. That really breaks it down to alleviate a lot of the stress of trying to include every detail and helping the people get to the story Clearly, so those alone were were great just uh, from my quick listen today as we talked, but there's so much knowledge in there. Uh, People can find out more about you, like I said, at StorySelling.com. Before we leave, is there one piece of of insider wisdom that we didn't get to that maybe you hoped that is uh, helpful for new speakers, new comedians, as well as people who have been at it for a while?
0: Well, i 'd like to go briefly into two places. My advice for for new speakers is it 's a journey, not a destination and If you go to your first NSA convention and you 'll see the old timers who have known each other for decades and kind of grown through their speaking careers together and they they you know, it 's easy to deify those people and they 've been at the business a long time ago a, a, for a long time, and some of them are immensely talented. But you'll get there. Just keep working on your speaking. Keep reading. Keep speaking. Uh, uh, my friend Bruce Terkel always says if you want to speak more, speak more. Take those Rotary Club gigs, whatever you can do to be of service to an audience, and then uh, lather, rinse, repeat. Keep doing it. Keep refining it. If you keep speaking, you'll keep getting better. And don't compare yourself to anybody and don't worry about where you're at now. Just keep growing the last one i wanted to to just touch on because rick your whole thing is comedy and i think one of the things we haven't quite got to yet is comedy and just as you develop a story awareness i'm always looking for stories sometimes i'll i'll explore gee, maybe I'll go down that street or, or take that detour because it could be that nothing happens and the story is that I wasted my time, but it could be that I meet somebody or see something that I wouldn't otherwise see. And taking those chances, you know, putting yourself uh, in the way of potential stories is important. And I think it's the same thing with jokes. So I know that you know, I've done a number of humorous speech contests And I always have a place in a humorous speech where I've got something to plug in that's from the room, from the day, and whether it has something to do with the food or the name tags or I'll find something that's absurd in the room and I make it my mission. The moment I wake, I walk in there, I'm thinking, okay, I've got a speech to do. I've got 45 minutes before I'm on stage and I'm going to find something ludicrous in this room that I can plug into my speech so that people know that I'm not just memorizing, that I'm, I'm pulling from their environment. And just as you become story aware, I think you can become humor aware and find that funny wherever you go, wherever you look, and it just makes your life a lot more fun. That's why they
1: call it funny. I love it. I love it. Thanks for bringing it there to close. That's a great point. And if, yeah, if we keep the same routines, we don't try anything new, we're not going to have any new stories and we're not going to have any new tales or new characters to implement. So get out there, experience life a little bit, whether you got to do it virtually now and visit some people online or go out there and meet them in person and stay six feet away. There's, there's stories to be told and I'm sure speakers and comedians will have uh, decades of material from this current lockdown. So uh, take advantage of looking around for what the interesting things are that might not be the the crucial sad stories right now, but there's some uplifting things and some powerful stuff going on around us. So good stories everywhere, comedy everywhere. Make notes. And it's more important to find that comedy. I mean,
0: remember, comedy got people, not, not comedy, but, but uh, humor got people through the Holocaust. Humor gets people through the worst of situations. And right now we're locked down. Some of us are locked down alone and it's tough. Uh, that's not the case with me. I'm here with my, my wife and my daughter and I've got dogs and you know, I work at home anyway. It hasn't affected me. I know other people who are climbing the walls. But you know, there's humor in that too. You can make fun of yourself and your situation, and, and people are doing that. And we've got social media for sharing, and we've got uh, Zoom and, and Skype and things like that for face to face connection. And stories are always about people. Connect with your people and share the joyful things in life.
1: It's super. Well, Dave, I hope anybody that was listening at the beginning and had a lot of conflict in their life had some kind of transformation during this podcast and came out on the other end a little bit better. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. You've got things going on. So thanks for fitting me in. Everybody, go to storiesailing.com, Check out Dave Bricker. Dave, thanks so much. It was excellent. Rick, thanks for having me. It's been an honor to be on your show. Oh, yeah. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dave Bricker. I can talk to Dave Ah, uh, for days. He's just—he knows how to tell a story. He knew how to keep our audience involved and listening in this podcast. As you could tell, you're still here, um, but he can teach you this. He's got a, a great website. It's called uh, storyselling.com dot com. S a i l i n g, just like the boat storyselling.com dot com. He's got some free tutorials on the website. He's got some great videos on there. His site looks great. He's got a book we mentioned, Speak Inside the Box. That's available on Amazon.com. I have a link to that in the show notes as well. So you can go to the show notes page here at schooloflast.com, episode 20, whatever this is, and uh, check out some more information about Dave. But again, it's Bricker, B-R-I-C-K-E-R. He's a speaker, trainer, coach. He can teach you how to make your stories pop. And uh, he's just got a lot of great stuff on his website. So check him out. Thanks, Dave, for joining us today. Thanks to everybody who's still with the podcast here over 200 episodes in, still finding incredible uh, people to interview and things to learn. I'm a lifelong learner myself and excited to uh, keep doing this. Thanks again to Ray Price for sponsoring. And again, if you want to join our live through Zoom online classes, Tuesday, August 11, 18, and 25 from 8 till 10 p.m. Central Standard Time, Join up. You can send a quick email to Laughs at gmail.com and just put in the subject line live Zoom August writing class. Something to that effect, and I'll get back to you and I'll sign you up. Let's do this thing. All right, you guys take care. Stay safe and uh, stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more
0: School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.